you'll open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7. There's been a little handout that was passed around. You won't have to have it this morning if you didn't get a copy. Uh, ask uh, Jason over here and he can get you a copy. He's one of our deacons. That is for you to be able to go home and continue to think through some of the things that I'm speaking about today. When we deal with the book of Daniel, as I said earlier, we're dealing with a whole context. Jeremiah and Ezekiel are contemporaries of Daniel. Daniel is one who has been taken into captivity and moved all the way as a teenager. Uh, he was moved all the way to Babylon and to the capital. He becomes an important figure in uh, kind of the, the kingdom of Babylon and especially in the king's court. Ezekiel and Jeremiah are two prophets. They are preaching or prophesying to the people of Judah who have been scattered and they are voices crying out at the same time as Daniel but their, uh, their job is a little different. Uh, their job is speaking directly to the people of Israel. They've been given warning of what would happen. God has brought the captivity about. Jerusalem has been laid low. And they are the ones having to preach to Judah and still Israel uh, about why you're here. All this trouble has come because of your sin. And you bowed the knee to all of these other idols. And you were desirous and willing to have it your way and not listen to the God who made you. And so therefore you've been brought under a chastisement. And so... Jeremiah and Ezekiel are prophesying in that context. And then there's Daniel who is in the city of Babylon and he has been speaking the truth of God to the kings. And in speaking the truth of God to these kings, we've already seen in chapters 1 through 6 a historical unfolding of uh, the movements of these kingdoms and now Daniel is expressing visions that he had during the time of this historic narrative that's been unfolded. We will begin to see this morning that chapter 7 and 8 of Daniel are really connected chapters. There's a lot of information that is given to you in prophetic, apocalyptic literature uh, or genre. It's been unfolded in this very apocalyptic way. This is a very usual and normal way for the Jews to speak about things that would happen in the near and far future because this is the way God spoke to his prophets. And so I've read to you verses 1 through 14 on several occasions of Daniel chapter 7. This morning I want to begin with verse 15 of Daniel 7 and then move into just a little bit of chapter 8. Let's begin by reading in verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me after he saw these visions of, of these beasts, and especially the, the fourth beast, which was extraordinarily terrorizing to him. I was distressed within me, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. I approached one of those who were standing by, began asking him the exact meaning of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will rise from the earth. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, for all ages to come. Then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze, and which devoured, crushed, and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn which came up, 
and before which three of them fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts and which was larger in appearance than its associates. I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one. And the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Thus he said, The fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law and they will be given into his hand for a time times and a half a time but the court will sit for judgment and his dominion will be taken away annihilated and destroyed forever then the sovereignty the dominion and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions will serve and obey him. At this point, the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me, and my face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Then verse 1, he has a later revelation. This is in the third year of the reign of Belshazzar. The king, a vision appeared to me. Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. I looked in the vision, and while I was looking, I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam. And I look, looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Eli Canal. Then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a ram which had two horns was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward, and no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power. But he did as he pleased and magnified himself. While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came up to the ram that had the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal and rushed at him in the mighty wrath. I saw him come beside the ram and he was enraged at him and he struck the ram and shattered his two horns and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly but as soon as he was mighty the Lord's horn, horn was broken. And in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. I want you to look over to verse 20 and 21 of chapter 8. Daniel is receiving an interpretation from Gabriel. And in verse 20 it says, The ram which you saw with two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece, and the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. In weeks previous and even this morning, we're reading of all of this language of these great beasts. Some of these beasts have an earthly identification. There are lions or a lion, but it has wings. There's a bear with ribs in its mouth. There's the leopard that has four wings and four heads. Then there's this unidentifiable, horrible beast that's mentioned in chapter 7. And then here in chapter 8, we return to an identification of something we recognize, a ram and a goat. And these identifications are not meant for us to get tangled up in every single little detail so that we're trying to flesh out every single perspective. It's giving us an overarching context. 
We will see God's rule and reign. We will see emerging earthly kingdoms. We will see the fall of earthly kingdoms. We will see the context of God bringing about the whole of his kingdom in its fullest sense being prophesied. We will see prophecy of one who is called the Son of Man. But in seeing all of that language and seeing some of that understanding, we have to see chapter 7 as a big picture. It's giving the big picture of what will happen. Daniel is speaking in the sense of a statesman, and he's being given a big picture of what will take place in all of these future kingdoms that are up and coming. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, even Isaiah, they're given some of that picture, but they're often dealing directly with Israel, whether that's Israel and Judah or the whole of Israel, however you want to look at that. But the two kingdoms, they're often speaking to the people themselves. Later down the road, Daniel's prophecy becomes a very big encouragement to the people. But in its time, in its place, Daniel is one who the Lord is using to give a great big picture of what is happening on this known habitation of the world. He's giving near future and he's giving far future. You need to imagine for a moment that chapter 7, in just those verses, those 28 verses, Daniel has written out what God gave him in prophecy about a period 900 or so years of history. Now, that ought to stand out in your mind, first of all, for this reason. When you hear liberal scholars that want to say that Daniel did not write the book of Daniel and that it came at a later time, especially a time that was closer to the period of, Roman, of the Roman Empire, those liberal scholars have a reason for saying that because they do not want to believe that there is a God and that God would prophesy no and ultimately have all sovereign control over the kingdoms and the kings of the earth that he could say and tell exactly what would happen to those kings and their kingdoms in their times. And for that all to be done, six, well, two, four, six, and nine hundred years in advance. You're seeing something that God is saying to us about his sovereignty that we have spoken about in previous weeks, but the big picture is something that is so massive it can't be spoken of enough. I have two main points this morning. Number one will be the shortest. Recognize the sovereignty of God over all kings and kingdoms. That's the big picture of Daniel 7. Recognize the sovereignty of God over all kings and kingdoms. From verse 2 onward, God stirs the seas of the nations in the vision to Daniel. God's raising all these nations up. Whatever these beasts are, whoever they are, and whatever they're going to do, God is using them for his purpose. Cyrus thought he was great and mighty and he was doing it his way and all along the while God is using him Alexander the Great I, I don't know if you read much about him but the immense military mind and strategy of a young man in his 20's is just unbelievable and then they've done a, a refreshed uh, rendering of his face. And you can see why people wanted to look at him. He's a good-looking guy. 
And he had strength and power and he had power of mind. And everybody wanted to follow him. And he was going to conquer the world. Matter of fact, so much so that when he got so far east, there was hardly anything left to conquer. That his army said, we're tired. They had somewhat of a mutiny and he said, you know what, we're done. It said on his way back to Babylon, he cried because there was no other worlds to conquer. That's what was in his mind. And all the while, it's God, God in his sovereignty that's using these kings and these kingdoms. He stirs these nations up, these beasts that are spoken of. He's stirring them up. Not only does he stir them up, but God rebukes and destroys the nations. As early as the psalmist gives recognition to this in Psalm chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, when he says, For you, speaking of God, Jehovah, you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne judging righteously. You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. This is before the rise of Cyrus or Alexander. This is before the rise of Julius or the Caesars. In Isaiah, leading up to the destruction of Israel in 722, Isaiah says, Alas! The uproar of many peoples who roar like the roaring of the seas and the rumbling of nations who rush on like the rumbling of mighty waters. All these nations, they're always rising and falling. They're doing their thing. They keep going. One nation warring one another. One group warring here and there. Does it sound like there's any understanding of our day? The nations just keep (laughs) clashing. No, 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 you can't do that. No, 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 I want that property. No, 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 no. All these people, boom, 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 boom. Isaiah says, it's been happening. It's like the rumbling of mighty waters. They just keep churning. He says, but he, speaking of God, will rebuke them and they will flee far away. And be chased like chaff in the mountains before the wind. Or like whirling dust before a gale. First of all, you need to note that Christ himself, his very coming, changed the context of the whole of the world. I want you to think about that for a minute. And historians, modern secular historians, they're trying to still erase it today. Everything has pretty much been centered around the coming of Christ, and that's the way we looked at history, because Christ had that much of an impact in his earthly coming. It changed the whole of the world. The whole of the gospel message came out through the Roman Empire, an empire that the Caesars thought was all about them, and really it was about the gospel going forward to the nations. But Isaiah is giving us just a little glimpse of even the second coming of Christ. They will flee far away, these nations, and be chased like chaff in the mountains before the wind or like whirling dust before a gale. When Christ returns, all the mighty rolling of the nations like the waters of the sea will end. Because the king will come and consummate, finally consummate once and for all his kingdom. It's God and his sovereignty that rules and reigns over all these kings and kingdoms. And we have to recognize it for what it is. Secondly, though, recognize the sovereignty of God in the movements of earthly kings and kingdoms. 
In previous weeks, we've given you know, some of this background. We've gone through some Old Testament history. We've considered the prophecies in some ways. And we certainly have only scratched the surface of some of it. But when you read these visions and dreams and their interpretations, recognize that predominantly, not all, but predominantly, chapter 7 and chapter 8 are predominantly about these earthly kings and kingdoms. And this morning, this will be our focus time-wise, is to speak about the context of these earthly kings and kingdoms. We need to note that chapter 7 focuses mainly on the kingdoms. Mainly on the kingdoms. Chapter 8 focuses mainly on the kings. Now, there's some overlap in both, and we can speak of that overlap, but we're going to look not only at God's sovereignty over all kings and kingdoms, but his sovereignty in the movements of of earthly kings and kingdoms. We read in Daniel's vision in chapter 7 about the first portion of the vision. He says, The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. Now, what I've done for you in your sheet that you can take home, and if you don't have a copy, what I've done for you, I've tried to parallel the uh, end of Daniel 2 where Nebuchadnezzar's dream is interpreted and this dream and vision that Daniel has here in chapter 7 so you can see the overlap. Because what you need to recognize the head of gold in Daniel 2 and this lion that has wings of an eagle that raises up and then the wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a, uh, like a man, this is the rise of the Babylonian kingdom in Nebuchadnezzar. Now we know that this is true just from the book of Daniel itself because what we see here is that Daniel is living through that. This is the whole essence of what happened to Israel in their fall and their captivity is that what? Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon came in and took the people captive. Judah was the last the last remaining lampstand so to speak and yet they had not worshipped God rightly and they had done things their way and God said it's over and in 605 B.C. The captivity begins and it goes all the way until 586 or 87 B.C. And at that point, the temple is just completely done away with. So you're seeing a parallel in chapter 2 and chapter 7. And you're recognizing here that God is the one that's moving these kingdoms. In Ezekiel, we read of the sadness of the captivity. We've also read of the sadness of captivity earlier in Jeremiah. But Robin read at the end of Jeremiah that there's a promise that Babylon will be dealt with. The same when we read in Jeremiah 25, there was a promise that Babylon will be dealt with. God is saying, here's my chastisement. I'm going to raise... Babylon up, they are going to take over Assyria. Essentially, Assyria had already captured the northern kingdom. I'm going to raise them up. They're going to take over Assyria, moving from the north down on the side, the the eastern shore of the Mediterranean, and they're going to take Judah over as well. I'm going to do that. God says, I'm doing it. These men are going to claim that they are in power and God says, I'm doing it. I'm doing it because I'm going to chastise my people. When you recognize this lion with wings, you recognize God is the one who gets to name these kings and their kingdoms. In prophetic language, 
It's a lion with wings. In real time, how do you think Nebuchadnezzar got his name? How do you think he has his existence and his being? How do you think Babylon is able to move out of the valleys and mountains and literally come through the valleys and mountains and take over all of that eastern portion of what we would call the Middle East and move west? How do you think that happens? God is doing that. Who's the one that reduced Nebuchadnezzar to a beast and then gave him back his humanity? Right? Who's the one that writes on the wall to Belshazzar? Now, Nebuchadnezzar didn't witness the end of Babylon. He was just prophesied to that it would happen. But Belshazzar saw it. The son of Nabonidus, or Nabonidus, he saw it. That kingdom would reign across the Middle East, over toward some of the Greek states, all the way until about 550 to 539 B.C. This second animal you see is this bear. It says it's resembling a bear. It was raised up on one side. Three ribs were in its mouth or in its teeth. And thus they said to it, arise and devour much meat. Now what's interesting here is that there's a little bit of information given about this beast here. And it's the Medo-Persian Empire. This is speaking of Cyrus coming in and how was God when he prophesied to the people of Israel through Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel? How was God going to bring Babylon down? Well, he did it through the Medo-Persian Empire. Cyrus comes in and just takes over. About 539 B.C. is when Belshazzar witnesses the fall. The Medo-Persian Empire captured all these other nations along the way. And yet at the same time, when you read in chapter 2 and even somewhat in other places in uh, chapter 7 and get an idea where they'll say that the kingdom, this kingdom was inferior to Babylon, yet... It spread more vastly and was greater. It's an identification of Cyrus. Cyrus was a different kind of king from the Babylonian kings. Although he had some descent in that median line, he was a little different. The Babylonian kings ruled with an iron fist. Cyrus was a man who tried to employ... uh, the harshness after he had employed the democracy. Cyrus was one who would go into a, uh, a place and take it over and try to let them rule themselves as long as they would bow the knee to him. A Babylonian king wouldn't do that. He would go in, take everything over, and say, you do what I tell you to do or nothing else. This bear is the Medo-Persian Empire. It's also the empire that's referred to in chapter 8, verses 4 and 20, as the ram. In chapter 8, what you will see is there becomes some magnification on the Medo-Persian empire. Chapter 7 gives you magnification on the empire of Rome. That's the fourth one we'll deal with. But the magnification on the Medo-Persian empire comes in chapter 8. Here we have to recognize that God is reminding even Babylon, you will stand and fall by my sovereignty and no one else's. Cyrus and the leaders of the Medo-Persian Empire, they devoured greater landmass and nations than Babylon 
both to the west, north, and the south. Scripture notates this about the Medo-Persian Empire. In verse 4 of chapter 8, I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward, and no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power. But he did as he pleased and magnified himself. This is what Cyrus and his descendants did as kings of the Medo-Persian Empire. I reminded you some weeks ago there's an actual interactive map that you can see online that will literally walk you through the changing of the ancient kingdoms. And as you choose a year on a timeline, the map will change and show you how these kingdoms spread and how they declined. Now, modern historians, which you all know how much I love history, modern historians, though, will simplify that and make that about man and the peoples and all the various social issues going on in the time and the day. Well, I'm going to simplify it even further. God himself reigns and rules, and he has a purpose far beyond whatever the social issues are of the day He has a purpose to deal with all of mankind, to bring mankind to bow before him. You need to recognize how glorious this is that even an empire this large, we're we're, we're talking um, an empire that would go from some vassal states around the North Mediterranean and go all the way toward the Indus River Valley, toward India, and come back around all of the Middle East and even toward into Egypt. Millions and millions of square miles. Millions of people were conquered by these kings and their kingdoms. This budding ram... And this bear are one and the same. They are the Medo-Persian Empire. Well, thirdly, God calls the rise and fall of Greece and Alexander. He calls the rise and fall of Medo-Persia and Cyrus. He calls the rise and fall of Babylon. And so now, thirdly, he calls the rise and fall of Greece and Alexander. In chapter 7, Greece is the leopard with four wings and four heads. Very... Little is said here of Greece compared to what's said in chapter 8. Remember, it's the focus of the kingdoms mainly here in chapter 7 giving us an overarching view of what's about to happen. See the vastness of this vision to Daniel. Um, Let's just put it in in the context of watching TV. Now it's that's not even in comparison. I know that. But I'm trying to give you something you can grab hold of. How many of you have ever watched a TV? Raise your hands. Okay. So we got all of us have watched a TV. And you see on TV, maybe you watch the History Channel. Probably not, but... Maybe you watch the History Channel, and on the History Channel, they tell you, we're going to give you a thousand years of history in a two-hour documentary. And you go, whoa. And you sit and you watch the whole documentary, and you get this thousand years of history in this documentary. And they give you all this information And they give all that they can in those two hours. And you're trying to soak it all in and deal with it all right there. And you're going, man, this happened and this happened and this happened. And you're dealing with the past. Well, this is happening to Daniel in visions and dreams about the future. And it's given in this apocalyptic language. And he's taking it all in. And the scripture keeps telling us he was terrified. He's seeing it like it's, it's right there in this vision and dream. You know, n- not like a TV or a movie screen, but 
but you get the idea. It's, it's there in front of him, and he's seeing it all happen, and God is giving him this information, and it's all there before him, and he's going, whoa, I've never heard of any of these things. I, I, I've heard or seen of nothing like this. God's unfolding for him this 900 years of history and saying this is how it will occur. Daniel knows of Alexander the Great 200 years before he's ever born. Now, he doesn't know him. He doesn't understand him. When you see the idea of this leopard with these four heads and four wings... This is a semblance of these these nations and these kings. And this particular one is the Medo-Persian Empire being taken over by Greece and particularly by the rule and reign of Alexander. Alexander the Great first takes over the Greek states. Alexander the Great then pummels the Persian Empire. And then he batters the known world as this goat. Cyrus really thought he was something. And even his sons, his descendants, they really thought they were something. I don't remember if it was Cyrus the second, I think, was the reigning king at the time of the fall, or maybe the third. But they just had this mentality about them that they were just, they were going to rule and reign the world. And here comes this young 20s Something. Now, how many of you men remember being 25 and full of vim and vigor and thinking about, I'm going to take the world, get the tiger by the tail. I got her, boy. Well, here's Alexander the Great, and he literally, he gets the world, and he takes it by the tail, and he does whatever he wants. It's one of the most amazing reigns of power that any person on earth has ever seen. The way he could march into towns, cities, and spaces, take them over. His armies were so well drilled. The mentality and the ability he had to maneuver his men into places that they were secured a victory before they ever showed up. Sometimes they would go into towns and places, large cities that people had just left. They didn't want to be there if it was going to be that kind of wreckage. They just gave it up. Can you imagine having that kind of power that you could inform a town or a city? Hey, Atlanta, Brandon Smith's coming. Get out! Everybody leave! I mean, in a way you go, that's pretty cool. I kind of like to have a little of that. Right? You need to get in your mind what Daniel is seeing here. He's being told about these kind of things hundreds of years before they actually happen. Alexander the Great moved, he started further west than any ruler before him, moved further east, further a little bit to the north and to the south. He even moves into Egypt, which for long times had been such a reigning power that people couldn't imagine Egypt could be taken over. But as a young man, after his armies had said, we've conquered enough, we're tired, we're going home. On his way back to Babylon to rule and reign, because from Babylon, that was to be the place to rule and reign from. He succumbs to death. Now, there's a lot of mystery as to how that was. Was he poisoned? 
that tends to happen with a lot of great rulers. They get poisoned by somebody who wants a little taste of that power. Nobody really knows. Some say that he had many different wounds from all of his battles, that over time he just succumbed to infections and things of that nature. But his rule and his reign is over. Now you have to remember the people of Israel are living through all of this. Daniel is seeing this is what the people of Israel are going to go through. Isaiah had been given some idea of Babylon. What would happen to Assyria and Babylon? Jeremiah gets a little picture of Babylon. And and, and the Medo-Persian Empire. But here Daniel gets a picture of this Alexander the Great and the Greek power. It's really kind of amazing that Daniel got to see that in that way. That God calls the rise and fall of Alexander the Great and even the four kings that came after him that are mentioned here in Daniel. When he died, four kings split up the kingdom. They were four of his generals. They split up the kingdom, but even they were taken over. And God is the one that caused them to be taken over. Could you imagine sitting around a table and saying, let's just split up the world. I'll rule this quarter. You'll rule that quarter. You get that quarter and you get that quarter and we'll just rule the world. Don't you think those men would have had a sense of, man, I got it. Daniel's saying to us, they think they got it, but they don't. God is ruling and reigning. He's the one bringing about, even in the roar of the nations, what's happening and what will happen. He's the one putting them together. Even to the point that this fourth kingdom, which is the main focus of chapter 7, is the rise and fall of Rome. God calls the rise and fall of Rome and the Caesars. The idea of the ten kings represents a sense of the power of Rome which had never been seen before. The Roman Empire stretched with ten times more power than the empires before it in chapter 7. verses 7 and 8 and verse 23 and 24. We have to recognize that what would happen that Daniel is prophesying about an empire that would stretch as far west as modern Spain, Portugal, and African Morocco. Would go as far east as the Persian Gulf and it would stretch around the whole of the Mediterranean, North Africa included, They didn't think Egypt could be taken. It had been taken for a little while, and now Rome takes it completely. And this empire stretches far north as Britannia and Germania. These were, I mean, you just have to imagine, Britannia and Germania being under any rule or reign at that time was unheard of. In those days, Germania and Britannia were like the Vikings of their day. Nobody thought they could be subdued. Now, certainly the Roman Empire had some troubles with them, but they subdued them more than they had ever been subdued before. Daniel is seeing all of this in these visions of seven and eight. And that's what puts the whole of the context of the coming kingdom into place. Think about it for a minute. We're talking about millions of square miles of rule and reign, millions of people subdued, no telling how many lives were lost in battles, starvation, the problems that war brings along with it. All of the detriments, the raping, the pillaging, the, the, just the, the paganism and the worship of the idols that goes along with all these ruling and reigning uh, kingdoms. And then the kings themselves were setting themselves up as gods. 
Many of these cities would have temples made to a particular ruler. The Romans were the worst. The Caesars deified themselves. Next week when we see the Son of Man, you need to see him in the whole context of who he is. It is hard to imagine God having this kind of sovereignty in the earthly movements of these kingdoms and these kings, and yet Daniel's going to have a vision of a rule and a reign that's eternal. A rule and a reign that brings peace instead of devastation, ultimately. You can see why at the end of Daniel 8, Daniel said, I was sick and I was tired. He's been given these visions and it has blown his mind. And now we need to look back on them and go, whoa. The sovereignty of God is magnificent. I'll leave you with three observations just quickly. I use the word remember here because I I want you to remember this in honor and awe. Remember the powerful majesty of God. Remember the powerful majesty of God. I'm telling you folks right now, name the ruler, president, king, dictator, name them today, whoever they are. They're only in power at the very behest of God Almighty. God wants them gone and they'll be gone. We need to bow in reverence and awe of the powerful majesty of God. Number two, remember the patient maneuvering of God. When we look at Daniel, we're only looking at one portion of the maneuvering of God in a particular historic narrative from chapter 1 to chapter 6. Then from chapter 7, you're being given a vision of what God's going to do over the next 900 years. And it will be approximately 600 years before Christ comes, before he then lives his earthly ministry. This is a patient maneuvering of God to work out His covenant in all time, space, and history. And all along the while, He's saving a people for Himself and He's saving them this patient way in His grace all along this time frame and He's never losing one of them. It's amazing. The control of God and the patience of God working in all things. There's not one little molecule outside of his sovereignty. It's right there. God's the one doing it. He's working and he's, he's moving and it's all in his patient way to bring about the salvation of his people. And he will not lose one of them. Thirdly, remember the peculiar methods of God. Remember the peculiar methods of God. It's peculiar to me that God chastises his people with a pagan nation. And then says to that pagan nation, I'm now going to chastise you because you went after my people. Does that not seem a little odd to you? Seems a little strange to me. That's a peculiar, odd way of doing something. And yet in the middle of it, God is saying, you know what? I may bring chastisement on you. I may discipline you. But you are still my people. And no one, no one will mess with you without having to deal with me. It's kind of like family, isn't it? I got one brother. Now, he doesn't really need for me to take up for him. He's like 6'3", 
three and a half, 270. He's a big old boy. But, now I can harass my brother, but if somebody really came and they got on my brother, uh-uh. No, 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 no. You folks are family around here. I, I, may, I may poke and prod at you a little bit, but if somebody comes to mess with one of you, uh-uh. No, 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 no. Pagan world beware. You mess with God's people, and you'll mess with the creator, owner, and ruler of all creation. Beware, pagan. Now, I don't use that word pagan pejoratively to be nasty and mean. I use it in the sense of an unbeliever who wants to poke and prod at God. And there's a lot of that going on right now. We're seeing it more and more in our own nation. We need to be the people of God that warn and caution. A day is coming. God will take care of his own. If you're not one of his, you need to stop, repent, and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. If you are one of his, do your work. Be patient. God may be chastising us, but he will take up our cause, and he will not leave us or forsake us. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've been merciful to give us time to think about your word. May we never forget your powerful majesty. Our minds are so small, Lord, we boil everything down to ourselves and we're so self-centered. Lord, will you forgive us, please? So many times I'm so self-centered thinking about my, my little world and my desires. I'm not bowing the knee to you. Lord, give me a, a larger view of your kingdom, the glories of how you're working and maneuvering patiently. Even when things look odd and peculiar, give me faith to trust and believe that you know what you're doing in all of your perfect righteousness, and I should continue to trust in you in all things. Pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.